Good morning. If you're visiting again, we want to welcome you. I'm Pastor Mike. Thanks for being our guest this morning. Just want to remind you again, the bulletin. We have some new prayer items there, different countries of the month. We want to encourage you to avail yourself to that during your own quiet time to pray for those specific items. Uh, it would help us to become more world Christians. I don't know if you've been to New York City. I love New York City. When I lived in Jersey, we'd go every year at Christmas time, absorb all the lights, the Christmas decorations. But <clears throat> New York City is known for its subway system. Maybe you've ridden on the subway system. Well, there was this one guy who decided to get on the subway, and it was very crowded, very hot, smelly, sultry. And as the subway began to go, um, what happened was he started to get sick, and he got nauseous, and he thought he was going to throw up. Well, finally, um, the train came to a stop, and the door opened, and he vomited. And the person standing on the outside was the recipient of all of that stuff. And that person said, why me? Maybe you've asked that question before as you've gone through a trial, a storm, a difficulty in your life. Why me, Lord? All of us go through trials in life. They come in many different shapes and sizes. In fact, Job made an interesting statement in chapter 5, verse 7. Job said that man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. In other words, trials are an inevitable part of life. We live in a fallen world with fallen people, and so we're going to go through trials. Sometimes God sends the trials, but a lot of times God is not necessarily the author of the trial, but he permits trials to happen in our life. And here's what I've discovered and you have discovered as well. Trials will either make you bitter or they will make you better. They will either turn you away from God or they will turn you towards God. And so how do we respond to the storms of life, the difficulties of life? Maybe you're going through one right now. If not, you may be heading into a storm. No one knows. How does God want us to respond? Well, I invite you to turn to James chapter 1. We want to embark upon the book of James as we go verse by verse through this wonderful New Testament epistle. We want to look at verses 1 through 13 as we go through the book of James. Let me give you a little bit of background of what's going on in the book of James. James, as you know, was the half-brother of Jesus, and he wrote this particular epistle. It's considered one of the earliest letters in the New Testament, and he is basically writing to a group of Jewish people that are beleaguered, that are suffering in their faith. They're being oppressed by the rich. And many of them, as we're going to see, were scattered. And so he pens this epistle in order to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Because if you read the book of James, James doesn't pull any punches. He writes to comfort them in their suffering, but he also writes to challenge them and confront them in their sin. Now, James was given a nickname in the early church. His nickname was Camel Knees, and the reason why he was given that nickname was because James spent a lot of time on his knees praying to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's interesting about James is James was not a believer in Jesus, his half-brother, uh, during his earthly ministry. If you read John chapter 7, we know that James was not a believer, but it wasn't until after the resurrection that James actually embraced Jesus as the Son of God. So if you have family members that are lost, children that are lost, and you've been praying, 
and you don't see any results, I want to encourage you to keep praying, to keep trusting, to keep asking God because God in his grace will answer your prayers. Notice how James opens up his epistle beginning in verse 1. James says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice James doesn't identify himself as the half-brother of Jesus. He could have pulled rank and said, hey, you know, guys, I'm the half-brother of Jesus. You know, I know Jesus. He doesn't do that. He calls himself a servant or a slave, a doulos of Jesus Christ, because he realized that his relationship to Jesus had changed. Jesus was his God. And by the way, you and I are slaves of Jesus Christ. Prior to salvation, Romans 6 says we were slaves to sin. And then when we accepted Jesus Christ, the reigning monarch of sin was broken in our life, and Jesus is now the Lord of our life, and so we are slaves to the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, that word slavery speaks of our duty towards God as slaves. God is our master. Jesus is our master. Therefore, we owe him our allegiance. We owe him our obedience. But Jesus takes it a step further and says we're not just slaves of God where we obey him. Jesus said in John 15, 15, I call you no longer slaves, but what? Friends. You and I are friends of God. We have intimacy with God. And so James identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. And notice the recipients to whom he's writing to in verse 1. He says, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. He's clearly writing to the diaspora, the Jewish people. These Jewish people had been scattered throughout the Roman Empire. In fact, if you read Acts chapter 2, many Jews came to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost to hear Peter preach the word of God. And so many Jews were scattered, but many commentators believe that James is writing to a group of Jewish people that were scattered during the martyrdom of Stephen. If you read Acts chapter 8, Stephen was martyred. He was the first Christian martyr. And when persecution broke out against the church, many of the Jewish people scattered. Many of them were bereft of support. Many of them were struggling financially. And many of them were being oppressed by the rich. The rich people, according to James chapter 2, were taking them to court. According to chapter 5, they weren't paying their wages. And so James is dealing with a group of beleaguered Jewish people who are suffering for their faith. And so right at the get-go, James deals with the subject of trials. And what he's going to do here is he's going to give us some principles on how you and I can respond to the difficulties of life. Now, I'd like to tell you that I've applied these principles perfectly in my life. I haven't. In fact, God has had to show me many, many times where my attitude needed a correction. How do we respond to the trials of life? Let me give you several principles. We won't finish this morning. We'll finish this up next week. First of all, when you go through a trial, a difficulty, or a storm, choose a joyful attitude. Choose a joyful attitude. Notice, if you will, what he says beginning in verse 2. James says, consider it all joy. Now, that word consider means to give thought. And he's saying, as you evaluate your circumstances, he says, consider it all joy, my brethren, not if, but what? When you encounter various trials. Notice he uses the word various because trials come in many different shapes and sizes, do they not? Sometimes they're physical. Sometimes they're emotional. Sometimes they're mental. Sometimes they're vocational. 
Sometimes they're relational, our marriage or our children. They come in many different shapes and sizes. Sometimes they last a couple hours. Sometimes they last for days. Sometimes they last for months, years. Some of you may have dealt with trials throughout your whole life. And what James says that you and I are to do is we are to choose a joyful attitude. He says, consider it all joy. You say, are you kidding me? How can I have joy in the midst of difficulty? Well, listen, we're the only group of people, Christians, that can rejoice and be sorrowful at the same time. The two are juxtaposed to one another. Now, joy is a supernatural gift of God. No doubt about it. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 tells us the Holy Spirit produces joy in our life. So when we're going through a difficulty, the Holy Spirit does produce joy in our life. You've seen people go through an immense storm and they seem to have a calm about them. Why? Because the Holy Spirit supernaturally produces joy. On the other hand, joy is a choice. I can choose whether or not to be joyful. Now, joy is different than uh, happiness. Happiness is based on circumstances. It's based on hapstance. For example, if I find out, let's say tomorrow, that I inherited $10 million, I'm going to be happy. It's based on circumstance. Joy, on the other hand, is much deeper than happiness. Joy is a deep-down confidence that God is in control and He's working all things together for my good. So that no matter what I'm going through, I know that God has a sovereign purpose for which I'm going through. Therefore, I can rejoice. And so joy, yes, is a supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit, but joy is something that you and I have to choose. When I get up in the morning and I'm going through a difficulty, I'm going through a rough patch in my life. You know what? I have to choose joy sometimes because you know what? My attitude is not always the best. I have a tendency to complain. I have a tendency to argue with God. Why me, God? Why am I going through this? And so I have to choose joy. And you know what? When you choose joy, it changes your perspective. In fact, in the book of Philippians... Paul uses the word joy, the noun, or the verb form rejoice 13 times. And listen, when Paul wrote the book of Philippians, he wasn't in Key West at a hotel sipping a pina colada on the beach. Paul was in prison suffering his Roman imprisonment, and he said, rejoice in the Lord always. In case you forget, he says, I'll say it again, rejoice. In fact, there's a woman by the name of Joni Erickson Tata. You've heard of her. She has a worldwide ministry. She is a quadriplegic. And she's had to learn the lesson of joy, especially the beginning years when she was first injured. When she was a teenager, she jumped into a lake and instantly became a quadriplegic. And when they put her in the hospital, they put her on what is called a striker bed. A striker bed is where they lay you um, flat out, and they turn you upside down periodically. I guess it's to stabilize you. And here is what Joni Erickson Tata said about her attitude and how she lacked joy when she was going through this, which all of us would probably resonate with her. Here is what she said, quote, But I, hurting and stubborn, preferred my sins. You ever been there? I preferred my peevish, snide, small-minded, mean-spirited comments grunting at people when they walked in or out, and letting food drool out of my mouth. Those were the sins that I made my own. 
You know what it's like when you make sin your own. You housebreak it. You domesticate it. You shield it from the Spirit's scrutiny. I did not want to let go of the sick, strange comfort of my own misery, end quote. You see, she didn't have a joyful attitude. And listen, I'm not criticizing her because probably all of us would have had the same type of attitude. She had a peevish, snide uh, disposition. She had to work on having a joyful attitude. At that point, you have to choose joy. So let me ask you a question. Are you a joyful person? When you go through difficulty, you may not feel it. You may get up in the morning and everything in you is broken, but you say, God, in the name of Jesus, I choose joy this morning. Or are you the type of person that walks around always acting like you've been baptized in lemon juice? You've met Christians like that. Some Christians are the most, if I could use this word, unjoyful people. When they come to church, it's just like they lack joy. They don't have a sense of joy. And so the first response you and I need to have, according to James, when we go through the storms of life, is we must consider it all joy. Yes, we cry out to God, give me joy. Father, fill me with the Holy Spirit. I need supernatural joy and peace in the midst of this, but I choose to have a joyful attitude. There's a second response you and I need to have, according to James, and that is this. We need to understand that our trials have a purpose. We need to understand that our trials have a purpose. Why? Because if there is purpose behind why we're going through what we're going through, it helps us to get through the difficulty. That's why people struggle in our culture. There's a worldview called nihilism. You ever heard of nihilism? Nihilism says that there is no meaning and purpose to life. Life is meaningless. That's why Kurt Cobain blew his brains out. Why? Because there's no purpose and meaning in life, according to this worldview. In fact, the Nazis did an experiment on the Jews. Hitler was a a demented, demonic person. One of the experiments they did in the workyards was they had the Jewish people take rocks, a pile of rocks, from one location to this location over here, and they went back and forth just picking up this pile of rocks, dropping them off over here, and then taking this pile and going back. And they did the same thing mindlessly over and over again until many of the Jewish people went crazy. Why? Because there was no purpose behind what they were doing. James gives us three purposes as to why God allows us to go through difficulty and suffering. And again, I'm not saying God causes all suffering, but why does God permit it? What purposes does God use? And there are many in the Bible, but James gives us three. First of all, one of the purposes of trials is they test our faith. Notice, if you will, verse 3. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Trials test our faith. You know, We all think that we're real spiritual. We get a little knowledge under our belt. We think we're solid in our walk with God, just like Peter. If all others forsake you, Lord, I will not forsake you. I will die for you. And what did Jesus say to Peter? He says, Peter, I love you, brother, but before the cock crows three times, you will deny me. See, we don't know what our foundation is like. We know our foundation's Christ, but we don't know the depth of our foundation until it is tested. Because what happens is when tests come into our life, and this is why God allows them, is to reveal to us where we're at spiritually. And you know what we often discover? There are cracks in our foundation. That's what I often find. In fact, today, when car manufacturers want to produce a vehicle, 
before they put it to the consumer, one of the things they do is they test crash the car. Why? Because they can boast all day long that their car is safe, but until it is tested, they're not going to put it out to the consumer. And so it is God allows our faith to be crash tested. And you know what? He reveals to us where we're at. In fact, one person said, a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. So that's one of the reasons why God allows us to go through suffering is it tests our faith. Secondly, it stretches our faith. It stretches our faith. Notice what he says at verse 3 again, knowing that the testing of your faith, here it is, produces endurance. You know what endurance does? Endurance stretches us. Endurance means this, you don't quit. How am I going to develop my endurance muscles if God doesn't send me through the winds of adversity? Because when I go through the winds of adversity, what it does is it stretches my faith and it teaches me to persevere. You and I know that we have to allow our kids to struggle because if we don't allow them to struggle, they're not going to develop the skill of perseverance. In fact, one guy was watching this particular butterfly come out of the cocoon. And you know the process of a caterpillar and then a butterfly. Well, the butterfly was struggling to get out of the cocoon and he thought he would help it along the way. So he took some scissors and he cut the surrounding cocoon and the butterfly ended up not making it and surviving because that process was necessary for the butterfly to struggle in order to develop its muscles and he ended up short-circuiting that and that's exactly what God does in our life. And like you, I've cried out to God and I said, Lord, I don't want my perseverance muscles stretched But you know what the Lord does? The Lord allows us to persevere. He doesn't want us to quit. He wants us to run the race with endurance. And so trials do have a purpose. They test our faith. They stretch our faith. James gives us a third and final purpose of trials. They mature our faith. They mature our faith. Notice what he says in verse 4. And let endurance have its perfect result. Here's the reason why. So that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, when he says perfect and complete, he's not talking about perfection here. Why? Because none of us are going to be perfect. The word perfect in the Bible is maturity. In other words, trials mature us. What is maturity in the Bible? Simple definition, Ephesians 4, maturity is becoming like Jesus Christ. How do you know you're maturing in your walk with God? Are you becoming more like Jesus Christ? That's the issue. And you see why God allows trials is to mature us because God is making us more like Christ. There's a state fair every year in Columbia, South Carolina. I've been going there every year. In fact, last year I spent, what was it, 200-something dollars because I took all my girls and my grandchildren. And, you know, I don't go for the rides. I don't want to, get, I don't want to eat a lot of food and get on the rides because then, you know, spin art everywhere. I just, that's not for me. So I go for the elephant ears and the corn dogs. Well, I came to an exhibit and there was this guy, he had uh, pieces of uh, trees, you know, stumps, and he had this image in his mind of what he wanted to produce out of this raw tree stump. You could see it up on the screen. And so he would take his um, chainsaw and here's what he produced. He used a chainsaw, 
He used a chisel. He used a hammer. He had an image from that block of wood, and he produced that image. And listen, that's exactly what God does in our life. He matures us because Romans 8 says his goal is to make us more like Jesus Christ. And in making us like Christ, God takes out his chainsaw, he takes out his chisel, he takes out his sander, and God begins to sift us, sand us, and prune us, and he produces in us the maturity, which is the image of Jesus Christ. You say, but Mike, I want to know why God took my child. I want to know why I got sick and this person didn't. And you know what? Sometimes we want God to give us a specific reason, and we argue with God. And God doesn't always give us a specific reason, but he gives us general reasons. And what's the purpose of a trial? It tests our faith. It stretches our faith, and it matures our faith. That's why God allows us to go through difficulty. And listen, if we understand that there is a purpose behind the trial, it helps us to get through it. My favorite story in the Bible is the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Do you remember at the end, after his brothers gathered and Joseph could have thumped them because of what they did to him? The classic statement in Genesis chapter 50, what did he say to his brothers? What you meant for evil, God meant it for good. See, there's purpose. And so if you're going through something right now, I know it's tough. I know when I've gone through difficulty, it's tough, but I have to cling to the fact that there is a purpose as to why I'm going through it. God may not answer some of the specifics in this life. God doesn't always promise that. Job argued with God. And he said, God, I know I'm not a perfect man, but I'm not the sinner that my three friends are accusing me of. Why? 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 And so for 36 chapters, 37 chapters, Job argued with his friends, and he argued with God. Finally, God appears in a whirlwind to him in chapter 38, and he says, Job, brace yourself like a man. I'm about to speak to you. And he goes on for three chapters, and he says, Job, where were you when I did this, 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 and this? In other words, he questioned Job. And Job said, God, I thought I knew you, but I don't. I repent. My attitude stinks. You see, Job didn't realize that behind the curtain, God and Satan were having this dialogue. Job didn't know that. And Job didn't know that his book would serve generations to come and help people through suffering. So there is a purpose as to why we go. So if you're going through a difficulty, choose a joyful attitude. Secondly, know that your trials have a purpose. There's a third response James gives us, cultivate a submissive will. Cultivate a submissive will. Notice, if you will, verse 4 of James 1. And, and I want you to circle that word highlighted, let. Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I want you to notice the word let because let implies a submissive will. In other words, let the trial do what it was designed to do. Many times when we go through suffering, we want to argue with God. That's part of the process. I get that. But you know what? In the end, we have to choose to say, all right, God, I don't understand this, but I'm going to let the trial do what it was designed to do, and I'm going to have a submissive will. Listen, I'm either going to kick back against God, I'm going to get mad at God, I'm going to get bitter at God, and you know how Christians manifest this? They stop going to church, they stop reading their Bibles. I've met Christians that have gone through difficulty, and I'm not criticizing them because some Christians go through deep waters. And what happens is when they get mad at God, they disengage. That's not letting the trial do what it's designed to do. Now, 
I'm not saying we always have a passive resignation, but in the end, it comes down to our attitudes. Am I going to submit to God in this? Am I going to allow him to make me better and more like Christ, or am I going to become bitter? we got to have a submissive attitude in the midst of it because a lot of times we struggle. In fact, Ann Morrow writes the following, and I think it speaks to this idea of having a submissive will. She says this, and I quote, I do not believe that sheer suffering teaches. If suffering alone taught, then all the world would be wise since everyone suffers. To suffering must be added mourning, understanding, patience, love, openness, here it is, and a willingness to remain vulnerable, end quote. We got to be vulnerable. We got to be teachable. One of the mentors in my life over the years has been Charles Stanley. As you know, Charles Stanley passed away last week at 90 years old. My wife and I watched the memorial service uh, on YouTube. If you haven't seen it, it's worth watching. It's two hours. They have David Jeremiah show up. They had Franklin Grand show up. They had a number of people in the Christian community show up at the church and some via satellite giving tribute to Charles Stanley. I had the privilege of going to his office and meeting him and asking him questions when I was feeling called to the ministry. I was in Birmingham, Alabama at the time attending school, and so it was only like a two-hour drive to Atlanta. So I would go periodically. Anyway, if you've ever heard the story, when Charles Stanley was pastoring in Florida, he was in Bartow, Florida, loved it there. He was only there a year and a half when the Lord spoke to him very clearly and said, I am going to move you. And the Lord made it very clear to him he was going to move him in the month of September. So he got a call from the First Baptist Church of Atlanta, the pulpit committee, and they said, we've sought the Lord and you're the only person the Lord's put on our heart. He said he left Florida kicking and screaming. He did not want to go. He cried. He kicked. He screamed. He argued with God. He went. And listen, he wasn't going to be the senior pastor. He's going to be the associate pastor. And the church was kind of moderate. He didn't agree with everything. And he wasn't given a warm welcome. In fact, when they were having a business meeting to vote him in, somebody went up to the platform and punched him in the eye was using profanity. At one point, he said that he was in a business meeting with a group of the leaders, and he suggested that, well, as we're dealing with this problem, let's seek the Lord in prayer. One of the men there said, leave God out of this. This is a business decision. That was the mentality. And you know what? If Charles did not submit to what God wanted, you probably would have never heard the name Charles Stanley. I simply say that we struggle sometimes with having a submissive will in the challenge because we don't understand, we struggle, or listen, we compare. God, why is it that I tithe, I give, I serve, I do my devotional life, I honor you, and I'm going through all of this, and this person is lukewarm, they don't serve, and you know what, Lord, they don't seem to have the suffering that I do. Maybe you've been there before. In fact, the psalmist did in Psalm 75. The psalmist argued, why do the wicked prosper and Christians suffer? So we need to have a submissive will in the midst of our difficulty as we're going through the trials of life. Well, I was going to go to the next point, but I'm going to end here because the first service I ended at the third point. Next week, we're going to pick up the final three or four points on how to deal with suffering in life. But let me close by saying this. Maybe you're going through a storm this morning, or maybe you're going to be heading into a storm. 
How does God want you to respond? Ask yourself this question. Do I have a joyful attitude? I know there are times where I haven't had a joyful attitude and I've had to repent over and over again and say, God, forgive me for complaining. Secondly, rehearse in your mind that my trial has a purpose. They test our faith. They mature our faith. They do all those things. And then thirdly, have a submissive will. Are you arguing and resisting God? You may argue, but in the end, are you submitting? And listen, if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning as your personal Lord and Savior, it's very simple. You can't get to heaven by being a good person because the Bible says we're all sinners by nature and choice. We're separated from God. And listen, the penalty for our sin is death and hell. When you die, your soul will leave your body and you will be eternally separated from God. But the good news is this, God offers you eternal life in heaven with him, but the only way to get there is you gotta repent of your sin, change your mind about sin, and you gotta trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Salvation is a free gift. You receive it by faith alone. You cannot earn it. You cannot deserve it. And if you've never made that decision this morning, I wanna encourage you to make that decision for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Thank you, Father, for all that you do for us. We praise you. We honor you. We give you thanks. And Father, I pray for anyone this morning that's going through a difficulty, that's going through a struggle. I pray that you would give them strength. You would give them grace. You would give them perseverance. Father, I pray for our country that's going through difficulty. Part of the difficulty is our rejection of you. Just yesterday, Father, the mall shooting, this seems to become routine now, clockwork. And Lord, you're seeking to get our attention in this country. God, I pray that you would pour out your spirit upon America. Move in our country. And God, we pray for this area, Dublin, Hilliard, and all the areas around here. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to work, that you would break up the fallow ground and open up people's hearts. We thank you this morning for what you're going to do in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we close. And again, don't forget, as you go out, you go out to the mission field. God wants you to be salt and light this week. God will give you divine appointments. I was selling something yesterday at my house on uh, Facebook Market. If you've never used it, it's pretty good. And so a guy came to my house. He's from Africa. And I sold him this particular item. And he gave me the money, and I said, let me ask you a question, sir. I said, if you died tonight, where would you spend eternity? And he said, I believe I'm going to go to heaven. I said, what do you think you got to do to get there? And he said, be a good person. He says, I treat other people well. I said, let me give you the news. I said, being good's not going to get you there. I said, the Bible says we're all sinners. We have to repent and trust in Jesus Christ, and he agreed with me. He said, I grew up in Africa in the Catholic Church. I said, it's one thing to know it here. It's another thing to know it here. And you know what? I could tell that resonated with him. You know what? He didn't come to Christ, but the seed was planted. In fact, he messaged me later and he thanked me. God will open up doors for you, but here's the deal. You got to take a step of faith. You may not do stranger evangelism, but you know people at work. You know neighbors. There's different ways that God can use you to plant seeds. So when we go out of here, we gather, we scatter. We gather, we scatter. Let's be salt and light this week. Let's worship together.